I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bible to the 100th Psalm. We read that together, and I want us to look at that among other texts this morning. Uh, For those of you who have been away from us all summer, we are finishing a series that we have been on this summer, a journey that we've taken together to discover what God has said about gathered worship when we come together each week. This is a big part of our life as the body of Christ, the church to whom uh, Christ has been given as head, is called to worship Him. And we gather together every week to do that. And so as the elders and I began praying together about what we should give attention to this summer, we thought it would be wise and helpful and useful to our congregation to really take a dive into what the Scripture says about worship. And so that's what we've been doing and uh, we have been rehearsing our goals for the series. I'm not going to do that this morning. But as we have been working through this series, I have reflected back on four important things that we have observed throughout our series. And I want to call them to your attention. If you're taking notes, this might be four things you want to jot down because they really have risen to the surface of everything that we've been talking about as we have been looking at God's Word and what it has to say about our gathered worship. And the first of those things is that as we began looking at what the Bible actually teaches about worship, we came to a conversation that Jesus had with a woman at a well. And we noted that at the end of that conversation, a monumental change had happened with regard to the location of worship. God has changed the location of worship. For the entire Old Testament, there was a prescribed place where God intended for His people to gather and worship. And that place, initially, as they traveled through the wilderness, was in a portable royal tent that you and I know as the tabernacle. But as they came into the land and God gave them their portions There was a particular place and a mountain in that place where God chose to build his city, the city of Jerusalem. And in that city, God raised up a king named Solomon to build a temple. And in that temple, God's people worshipped for generations and for centuries. They were called to come three times a year and to gather, to celebrate who God is and what God is like. And so... When we come to the New Testament, there is a monumental change. Because in that conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus actually said to answer her question, where should we worship? It's not on the mountain that you're thinking as a Samaritan, and it's no longer on the mountain where God's people Israel have worshipped for centuries. There is a different location for worship, and that location is in the Spirit and by means of truth. And as we looked at that text, we began to realize that there is a glorious new temple of cosmic proportions that the Spirit of God is building out of living stones. And you and I as believers are part of that temple. And the chief cornerstone, the most beautiful piece of that temple is its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in that temple that we gather and as that temple that we come together to render our glad worship before the Lord. And so we noted that God has changed the location of our worship. The second thing that we learned this summer as we've looked at these texts is that God designed the manner in which we come before Him to worship. We looked at Psalm 95 at the very beginning of our series, and we noted that God designed worship to be offered joyfully and obediently and humbly and eagerly. And as we made our way through that psalm, we saw expressions of that among God's people. The psalm that we're looking at this morning, make a joyful noise to the Lord, verse 1. Serve the Lord with gladness, verse 2. Come into His presence with singing, verse 2. And we can just keep going. Verse 4, enter His gates with thanksgiving, His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. And so Psalm 100, 
and uh, encourages us and exhorts us to enter into the courts of the Lord with praise and joyful singing. Psalm 22, 3 has a very interesting phrase. In Psalm 22, verse 3, we are told that God is enthroned on the praise of His people. And if you think back to Psalm 22, Psalm 22 comes at a very dark and deep moment in the psalmist's life. And he, as he thinks about the difficulty that is before him and the darkness that has come upon him, he runs to the safety of God's sovereignty. And he notes this. He notes that this sovereign God is elevated. He is enthroned on the praise of his people. And I would suggest to you that what happens is that as David began rehearsing the songs that he wrote for Israel to sing, this idea of God's sovereignty is woven throughout all of those songs. And so we see that there is a manner by which God has prescribed our worship. And then the third thing that we noted together is that there are actually biblical components that really make up what God desires in worship. And in the New Testament, we went to Acts 2.42 to see these. And, and those components are apostolic instruction, preaching, and teaching. Ministry, partnership. We noted the word fellowship. There had that concept. Rehearsing and celebrating gospel realities in the observation of the ordinances. And we spent time looking at those ordinances, particularly the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, and then the final component that we see there is Scripture-shaped praying. They continued steadfastly in the prayers. And so there are biblical components that have been prescribed for worship. And all of those need to be part of what we do on a weekly basis. And then there are spiritual means. That's the last thing that we learned or one of the last things we've learned. And that is there are spiritual means by which worship is offered. In the Old Testament, offering worship to God involves sacrifices and thank, thanks offerings and prayers and praise that was given by the covenant nation Israel. In the New Testament, worship is offered through the sacrificial giving of God's people, through the biblical praying and singing that His redeemed people bring before Him. And this morning, I would like us to focus our attention on that last means. I want us to think about the importance that singing has in our corporate gathered worship. Throughout the entire Old Testament, when God's people came together, they sang. They sang worship to God in the temple. They sang on the road to Jerusalem. There are songs of ascent that are laid out for us in the Bible. There are 15 of them that Israel would sing together nationally three times a year. And when they came before the Lord, they would sing. In the New Testament, believers came together to sing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we have a description, the only description in the New Testament of an actual worship service. And one of the things that happened in that worship service, as it was described to us, is the singing of hymns. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, we see the entire assembled people of God, all of the creation gathered around the throne of God. And in Revelation 4 and 5, five different times, they are singing to the Lord. And so singing is a very important part of our worship. And I believe if we can come to the Scriptures and let the Scriptures inform us about why this is so, then I think it will transform the way we think about singing in our worship so that when we come, our singing will not be lifeless, it will not be joyless, it will not be mindless, but it will be what Psalm 100 describes. It will be the kind of singing that sounds joyful to the Lord. It will be the kind of singing that expresses gladness before the Lord, and it will be the kind of singing that gives thanks to the Lord and renders praise to Him for who He is and for what He's done. And so that's what I hope to do out of the text of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning. And so let's begin by observing the fact that the Bible actually 
exhorts us to sing. It's not just something that we do because, well, that's kind of what we do in worship. There is actually a biblical injunction or a biblical exhortation to sing. And so let me show that to you out of the texts of Scripture that uh, you may want to just jot down. From the very beginning of our relationship with God, singing has been an important component of how we express gratitude to God. You say, well, pastor, where in the world are you getting that? Well, in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, God put Adam to sleep. Have you ever thought about that? When Adam went to sleep, he had a garden full of beautiful things that he could enjoy, a garden full of the most magnificent creatures on the planet, but he was alone. And when he woke up, everything was different because God had given to him Eve. And when he saw Eve, the very first thing he did was he sang. And we have the text of that song that he sang to the Lord in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. It's the very first song that humanity ever experienced, and it was on the occasion of a woman coming into a man's life. Now think about that. How many songs are written in honor of some woman that some guy either wants to impress, has fallen in love with, I really just admire this woman, is so sad that she doesn't love him back, so there's a whole category of songs about women who leave There's a whole category of songs about women who we desire to come. I mean, a lot of our singing, ladies, is about you. And and that was certainly true for Adam. So after seeing Eve for the very first time, Adam broke out in song. After experiencing God's deliverance out of Egypt, the very first thing Moses and the entire nation did is they sang a hymn. They sang a song. It's called the Song of Moses. And it is recorded for you in 21 verses in Exodus 15. It's going to show up again in Scripture in Psalm 106. It's going to find itself again in the heavenly praise in Revelation 15, where the song of Moses becomes the song of the Lamb. And so when God's people experience deliverance at the Red Sea, they express their their gladness through exuberant singing before the Lord. In 1 Chronicles 25, 1-7, David assembled an entire group of singers and musicians to join him in writing songs that Israel would sing for centuries in her gathered worship. And in the New Testament, there are several hymns the early church sang together to celebrate and commemorate the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And so as you go through your Bible, as you go through both Testaments from the very beginning to the very end in Revelation 4 and 5 and in Revelation 15, singing is an important component of the gathered worship of God's people. But remember I said that it wasn't just an important component. I said it was actually commanded. It was actually exhorted. Let me give you four texts that show you this. Psalm 95. Verses 1 through 3, we began our series with that psalm. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Ninety-five, Psalm 95 actually commands us This is the language of exhortation. Psalm 100 that we read together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Come into His presence with singing. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. And so we see out of Psalm 100 throughout those five verses a command to sing when we gather to worship. And then two texts out of the New Testament that you're familiar with in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing or speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. 
And the language that he uses is the language of command. It's the language of exhortation. And he repeats that same idea to the Colossian believers in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How are we going to do that? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. And so the first thing I think we've got to acknowledge as a congregation and really as believers is that when we come together and we sing, we are actually obeying what God's Word has laid out for us and what God has designed as an important part of our gathered worship. And this brings me to the next question that sort of came to my mind as I was thinking about this. Why does God command this? In other words, what is the value of this? And I want to ask you to turn to Psalm 33 for a moment. And I want you to look at verse 1, because there's an interesting phrase in verse 1 that I want you to pull out. Psalm 33, David says this, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. And then he says this, Praise befits the upright. And the word befit there is saying more than just that that praise when we come together and we enter the courts with praise and thanksgiving and we, we, we sing joyfully to the Lord. David is saying more than just, it is appropriate. It is a fitting response to God. It is appropriate and it is fitting, but David is actually saying something different about that. He's using the word befitting to say this, it is beneficial. There is a benefit to this. When God designed congregational worship, or the we're calling it the gathered worship of His people, and He placed as one of its components the glad singing of praise to Him by His people, this text is saying that when God did that, He did that because there is a benefit to us when we do that. And so what are the benefits? biblically, of, co- of corporate singing when we come together. Well, one of those benefits is this. It is the natural expression of praising God together. It is the national, uh, natural expression of praising God together. Many of the Psalms were written with the intention that they would be sung by God's people when they came together to worship or when they traveled together to worship. Somebody described Israel's music, the songs of ascent, as the road music that Israel used when they came together on their way to worship. It's interesting when you actually look at the Psalms, and this this often doesn't show up on your uh, device, at least not on mine as I'm reading through Scriptures, but if you actually open up your printed Bible, you'll see this much more clearly. 95 of the Psalms... I'm sorry, I'm getting my numbers mixed up. 59 of the Psalms have this sort of line right above the first verse, to the choir master, to the choir master. Eight of them have this sort of line next to that, on stringed instruments. To the choir master, 59. Eight of the Psalms with stringed instruments. 21 of the Psalms have a tune listed. With them. For example, Psalm 69 is to be sung to a tune that Israel used to call the lilies. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what the tune is, but if you lived in ancient Israel, you would know what that tune was. Psalm 62 was to be sung to a tune called Jeduthun. Psalm 22, the one we just looked at, was to be sung to a tune that Israel used to call the Doe of the Dawn. I have no idea what these tunes are, but it's interesting to me that 21 of the Psalms have tunes associated with them. And 15, as we've noted before, are songs of ascent. They are Israel's road music. In other words, the Psalms were written in part to be the corporate national hymnody of Israel, and they became an important means of singing praise together in a united way. 
The Psalms also became an important way of rendering corporate prayer out of a united heart. I want you to think for a minute about Acts 2.42. We spent a lot of time on that text. The text says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. These are the components of the worship of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and then it says this, to the prayers. It's interesting that it does, it's not just a prayer, but, but it's to the prayers. You notice that in Acts 2.42? You might want to just underline that little word, the, there, because it's talking about specific prayers. What were the prayers that Israel knew, and what were the prayers that came together in their worship? And those prayers, I believe, were the prayers of David. Psalm 72.20 actually calls the Psalms the prayers of of David. And the prayers of David are filled or fill the Psalms. Over 104 of the Psalms have some component of prayer in them. 75 of them are entire prayers. Over half the Psalms or about half the Psalms are entirely prayer. Many of these prayers were written to the choir master, which means they were intended to be sung as prayers. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that a lot of times when we sing together, there are times in the song when we stop singing about God and we start singing to God. I mean, think about the wording of the hymns, and there are just times in the hymn where all of a sudden we've been singing about God's mercy, we've been singing about God's faithfulness, we've been affirming some idea about God together out of a united way. We've been praising God for who He is and what He is like, and then all of a sudden we move right into prayer. And we start talking to God about that particular aspect that we've just been praising Him for. And you know, when we do that, we are coming together in a united way. And here in this congregation, I mean, just think about it, that every week together we stand and we sing together. And often in our singing, as we lift our voices in a united way, we are all praying together and we are all praying the same thing out of a united voice and out of a united heart to God. And many of the times we do that, We are actually singing in language that we find in Scripture. When we sing this way, we are learning how to pray. We are learning what to pray for. Have you ever been in a position where life has thrown you such a curveball that you just don't know what to pray? I mean, you could pray for this, And maybe it would go this way, or you could pray for this, and maybe it would go this way. Or maybe you are in such a place where where the the trail has taken a dip, and you're down in the dip, and, and you can't see above the hill, and you don't know what's on the other side, and you don't know how to pray. You don't know if God is pushing the brakes, and He wants you to turn around, or you don't know if God has allowed this obstacle because He wants you to go through it. You have no idea what to pray. And you open up your hymn book, the book of Psalms, and you find people, David, Asaph, and you learn not just how to pray, you learn what to pray. Let me give you an example of this. Turn over in the book of Psalms, if you don't mind, to Psalm Let me get right to it so that we don't miss it. Psalm 73. And all of us have been here. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Asaph, one of the songwriters in 1 Chronicles 25 that David gathered together. So we are talking about someone who was a skilled musician. And Asaph had a problem that was shaking his You know, sometimes you're going to find things that are so difficult, they shake your faith. So what was it that shook his faith? Look at verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps 
had nearly slipped. And he's speaking spiritually here. He's saying, look, I came to a place in my life where even in my role as one of the chief musicians that God had gifted and God had appointed to lead Israel in worship, even in that place, my feet almost slipped away from me. So Asaph, what, what's the problem? And the problem Asaph would say is this, my theology doesn't seem true. My theology does not line up with what I am experiencing over a long period of time and repeatedly all around me. My theology isn't working. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where the theology that you've been taught, the theology that you hear in church when you sit in the equip hour and Pastor Doug or Pastor Ben or others of the equip hour starts teaching you about marriage or they start teaching you about raising your kids or that we start going through some doctrine in the Word of God and you hear all of this and you college students have been sitting under some of the best teaching that I can think of as uh, Bert Arrowwood and others begin to open the Word of God and at some point all of this rich theology that you are learning is going to run up on a roadblock and you're going to wonder, is this true? What was the roadblock for any sample? Look at his theology in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, Asaph believed, well, you and I believe, that God is good and that He is particularly good to those who are pure in heart. Right? But here's what he ran into in verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph says, look, I, I looked around and I heard all this truth and I actually wrote songs about it. And then I began to realize this isn't matching what I'm seeing. I look around and it is the wicked who prosper. They have no pangs, verse 4, until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, they're prosperous. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. And violence covers them as a garment. It's not just that they are sort of ignorant of God. They're actually disobeying God and acting in very wicked ways. I mean, let's put it right down to where you and I live. Here you are, and after church today, you're going to get in your car, and you're going to drive home, and uh, you're going to sit down to your meal if you eat at home, or maybe you're going to get something on the way home, and then you're going to sit down, and you're going to look at the rest of the day, and you're going to think about your week, and you're going to go, I have no idea how I'm going to get through this week. I just don't. And then somebody at your house helpfully says, hey, is this a good time to talk about the checkbook? Can I just say this to you? There are no good times to talk about the checkbook. It is not the will of God that you talk about the checkbook. But it is a necessary evil, isn't it? And so here you are, and you can sit down in the checkbook, and whenever that happens in my house, I already know how that conversation is going to go. Don't you? Let me just say this. In thir almost 37 years of marriage, I can't remember too many times can't remember any, but just in case there is one that I'm forgetting, I'm going to couch myself because my dear wife is here and I, I just want to make sure that I, you know, have uh, marital happiness today at the end of this illustration, which, you know, this is a problem. When you think of an illustration on the fly, it gets you in trouble. So I'm hoping I don't get in trouble. Pray for me as we go through this. But think about this for a second. I, in 37 years of marriage, I don't remember many or any conversations that started like this. Can we talk about the checkbook? Yeah. You know, we have more money in the checkbook than I realized. There's 5000 extra dollars in there. I'm like, can we talk again next week? You know how the conversations go? Honey, there is, um, there is money that we need to pay, and there's money that's in the checkbook, and the two don't match, and there's pressure. And you're thinking, man, it would sure be nice to do this or to do that. And, and then it's just, and, and, and I mean, it just overwhelms you. And then you go outside and your neighbor's washing his brand new car. And you're like, oh. He goes, yeah, I, I got a raise at work. And you're like, are you kidding me? 
You're like, God, that's, hey, that's, that's good. I'm glad you got in your car. And you're going, and you're going, and you're saying to the Lord, Lord, what are you up to? That dude actually not only doesn't know you, but in case you haven't seen what's going on in his backyard every weekend, he's actually disobeying you. And you sent him a new car. And here I am every week writing a check to the church or hitting the text button and giving electronically like Palmetto wants me to do. And I figured out finally how to do that. And, and I'm, I'm paying my kids school bill at this Christian school I'm supposed to send them to. And I'm doing all the stuff I'm supposed to do. And, and my car just has a flat tire and I don't have any money. What's going on? So in our world, that's what Asaph was talking about. And he said, when I thought about this long enough, my feet almost slipped. Because he's not talking about one time or two times. He's seeing this all throughout the nation. And in verse 16, he said, now when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. The more I thought about this, the worse it got until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Nevertheless, verse 23, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire more. And God said to Asaph, write that down and put it in the songbook because there are going to be more people after you who need to be reminded and when they come together and they sing, they need to sing about this because what you learned in the dark, they need to sing about in the light. And so singing becomes a powerful aid to help us understand and remember how to pray in times like that. And then in Colossians 3.16, it is an important component of the ministry of the Word. Paul said, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How in the world are we going to do that? And part of the answer to that isn't just the preaching. Part of the way that God intends for the Word of God to dwell in us richly, like Paul told the Colossians in chapter 3, is what he said to the Ephesians in chapter 5. You are to speak to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual psalms. If you have your Bible with you, let me have you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 25, and I want to show you something very interesting out of this text, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this text, but I want to point out a phrase to you that occurs in this text. This is when David was gathering all of the musicians, 288 of them, that were going to come together and write the music and the hymnody for Israel. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, there's a phrase here that bothered me for a long time. Look at verse 1. David and the chief of the service, also set apart for the service, the sons of Asaph. We just saw a song that Asaph wrote. And of Heman and of Jejuthun, who prophesied with lyres and harps and cymbals. Look down at the end of verse 2. Under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. At the end of verse 3 under the direction of their father, Jejuthun, who prophesied with the lyre in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Verse 6, they were all under the direction of their father in the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres for the service of the house of the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that all of this is described as prophesied. You and I think about prophesying predominantly as speaking authoritative truth about the future. But here in this text, prophesying is actually tied to the singing that God gave Israel through the Psalms. And so I want to make sure you and I understand that as we come together and we sing, we are actually doing something that is related to the word ministry of the church. 
That's why what we sing matters. We're going to talk about that as we wrap up here in just a moment. The Scripture also talks about the content of our singing. So we know we're supposed to sing. We can see the value of it, but, but as we come together, what are we supposed to sing? And in the text that I read to you this morning, out of Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, God has actually given us the content of our singing. Here's what we're supposed to sing. We've not been left guessing as to what God desires in gathered worship, nor are we given freedom to go outside the boundaries that God has given us. That's one of the reasons, folks, that when we come together to worship, we don't bring secular songs or secular music into our worship. Even secular music that we might legitimately enjoy in other parts of our life. Some of us have a container or a place in our life for secular music. And as we listen to that music, we enjoy it. It, it's, It's part of the beauty of God's creation. It's part of God's common grace in our life. But we don't bring that music in when we worship. And and I just want to make sure we understand that. When we come together and gathered worship, God has told us what to sing. And he's given us three categories to put that in. We are reminded to sing the Psalms. And we've already talked about that. And we've already observed that in ancient Israel, this is what they did sing and why it was so beneficial to them. Psalms help us render united, thankful, joyful praise to the Lord. And they help us come before God and pray scripture-shaped prayers out of a united voice and with a united heart. So we are reminded to sing psalms. But we're also exhorted to sing hymns. And right now there's a few of you in the room that are going, finally, somebody's going to talk about hymns in this church. Right? You know who you are. I know who you are. Nobody else knows who you are. The Lord knows who you are. Now, let me ask you a question. Should we sing hymns? And the answer is what? Yes. But when Paul talked about hymns in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, I think sometimes we have in our mind music that was written between this date and this date, and it doesn't show up on a screen. It shows up in a book, and it's the the hymns that our parents and our grandparents saying, and that's what Paul meant when he was writing about singing hymns in worship. Now, how many of you think that? Don't raise your hand. But for a long time, that's what I thought. And as I began looking at this text, the the biblical idea of a hymn is that the early church had come to recognize something monumental about Jesus. Jesus, in their mind, by the resurrection, had been elevated and restored to the glorious position that he had before the incarnation, and Jesus was worthy of the kind of praise that in the Old Testament was only given to God. If you go in the Old Testament and you search the hymnody of ancient Israel you will never find praise rendered directly to the second member of the Trinity. There are oblique references that we recognize looking back from the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, if you are rendering praise, you are rendering praise to the first person of the Godhead. And all of a sudden, come a group of people who are gathering together to worship in Jesus' name. And they are starting to sing praises to Him that were only appropriately rendered to God in the Old Testament. And those praises, those songs were called hymns. And there are a number of them found in your New Testament. Let me give you one short example. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, here's an example of a hymn the early church sang together. We don't know the tune We don't know if they just sang this repeatedly or if they sang expressions of this, but we do know that this was one of their hymns in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh. 
He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And he was taken up to glory. And all of God's people would say what? Amen. The early church sang that together. Would you like a longer hymn? We're not going to look at this today, but in Ephesians chapter 1, there is a full hymn that the early church sang together. It begins in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And it goes all the way through verse 14. And it has three stanzas. Stanza number one is about the work God the Father did. Stanza number two is about the work God the Son did. And stanza number three is about the work God the Spirit did. And there is a chorus that separates each of those stanzas to the praise of His glory. So when you read the word hymn in your New Testament, it is a song the early church sang that celebrated the person and the work of Jesus Christ in biblical language. And Paul says, now you need to sing those. And then we're commanded by Paul to sing spirit-given songs, spiritual songs. You ought to take your pen, if you have a, a, a written Bible, and you ought to underline the word S in that word spirit or spiritual and capitalize it because it's actually referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit continually gives fresh songs to His believers just like He did in the Old Testament. Throughout Israel's long history, the Spirit of God gave His people new and fresh songs by which they would commemorate the goodness of God's mercy that was new and fresh every morning, just like Lamentations 3 talks about. And the Holy Spirit didn't stop that ministry in the New Testament. And he hasn't stopped that ministry today. Which brings me then to this. What does that kind of singing actually look like? Do we have a model of this anywhere in your Bible? And the answer is we do. It's in Psalm 33. And so let me have you turn. That's our final passage. Let me have you turn there. Psalm 33. There is a model for this. Let me read it to you while you're turning there. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. There's the exhortation to sing. Remember we saw that earlier? We're going to see all of these components in this psalm. There's the exhortation to sing. Shout for joy, O Lord. Uh, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him. So there is the exhortation to sing. The motivation for singing is this. Praise benefits the upright. This is not just beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. It's beneficial to, uh, to our own hearts and lives. And then there is the manner of singing. This is how we are to sing. We're to do it with song. Play, make melody, sing. We're to do it skillfully, carefully, thoughtfully, intentionally. And we're to do it with wholehearted passion. Notice the word shout for joy. Oh, you righteous. And we're to do it out of joy and thankfulness to God. And the content of that singing is the Word. For the Word of the Lord is upright. We're we're supposed to sing the Word of God. We're supposed to celebrate the work of God. Notice verse 4 and 5. For the Word of the Lord is upright, and His work is done in faithfulness. We sing about His Word. We sing about His work. And we sing about His ways. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And then there is the nature of the singing. Sing to him a new song. That word new there is the word fresh. Sometimes we, and and some of you have heard this, this verse is used to say, look, the songs we used to sing, we don't sing anymore. But that's not what David actually means here in this text. He's saying this that there are new and fresh mercies that come to God's people every day. Lamentations 3, His mercies are new. They are fresh every morning. That's the word. And that same word is the word that David uses in verse 3, sing unto Him a fresh song on strings and with loud shouts. In other words, we need to sing fresh songs to God because He is constantly doing fresh and new things in our lives. Now, can I just be really frank with you? Can I thank you for something as a church? It is a joy 
to pastor a church that welcomes new and fresh song. We do that regularly here. Our musicians introduce us to theologically rich songs that God continues to give our church. And I hope you never take that for granted because that's not true in every church. Sadly, there are churches who resist or reject or, or at best tolerate any new music that God brings and gives to His people. And thankfully, you don't do that. You have received it with gratitude. And so I want to just challenge us as we come to a conclusion with our time this morning. If we are to render this kind of praise to God with this kind of music, with psalms and hymns and fresh spirit-given music that God gives to His church, how does it work here at Palmetto? How does it work here at Palmetto? And I want to make some statements to you about that. And the first of them is this. We strive to be intentional when it comes to what we sing. We are committed to being biblical in the selection of what we sing. We are led by our elders in this. The elders make the decisions about our music. This is a pastoral, this is an elder-led congregation. And as we come to the Word of God... The elders are called to exercise discernment, and so the elders are the ones who lead our worship selection. I'm not talking about every single week. We don't like pick the songs for the week, but as we think about the body of hymnody that we sing, that sits under the purview of the elders. And while we take into consideration the desires and the tastes of our congregation, that is not predominantly what drives us. We are driven by what is useful to this body. And then fourthly, we want to engage the whole congregation. So what does that actually mean in practice? And so let me give you some things that you may want to write down as you think about our hymnody here in, uh, in our congregation together. Number one, our hymnody must be theologically accurate. It must be biblically faithful for it to be scripturally useful. It must be theologically accurate and biblical biblically faithful. It must use Bible language acceptably. It must present biblical concepts accurately, and it must relate truth and doctrine rightly. And so that means the elders will evaluate a hymn or a song on its own merits. And while we are aware that sometimes a song will have associations, that is not predominantly and really not even how we make decisions about a song. We don't make decisions about a song on the basis of who sang it or where it's being sung. We make decisions about a song on its theological accuracy, its biblical fidelity, and its spiritual usefulness to this congregation. And that's our commitment to you. And we want you to know that. We also are committed that our, our, our singing will be congregationally acceptable, or accessible rather. In other words, the songs we sing should be singable by this congregation within our ability and our capacity, and it should reflect the congregation's generational composition. I mean, look around and see the generational diversity of this congregation. And so we're going to sing reflective of that generational composition and cultural context. And this means that our singing will predominantly lean toward congregational singing, although not exclusively. Right? So it must be congregationally accessible. Thirdly, we desire that our, the songs we sing be spiritually memorable. That they would help us retain the truth throughout the week. So while we want you to sing familiar songs that you know, we're also going to introduce you to new songs that we want you to become familiar with so that you can remember truth throughout the week. And so there'll be a good mix of that. And then I've already said this, but I want to make this again we want our singing to be reflective of the multi-generational composition that God has brought to our church. We want to sing songs that resonate with all of the generations that are reflected in our congregation. There are generations above me and there are generations below me and we each have hymnody that we enjoy, that we grew up with. And this body needs to sing hymnody that speaks to all the generations. Now if you look around in our church, you're going to notice that there is a generation that predominates in this congregation by God's good doing. 
Most of the people in our church that gather to worship are under the age of 40. There are some of us who are slightly above the age of 40, and then there are those of you who are well beyond the age of 40. And we want to sing in ways that resonate with all of us, but we're going to predominantly weight our singing to the generation that God has brought here. And that's going to constantly change in the life of any congregation. Number five, we want to appreciate the rich and full hymnody God has given and continues to give to our church. We have 500 years of hymnody, and God has given us rich hymns, and He continues to give us rich hymns, and we want to continue to introduce those new hymns and familiarize ourselves with the hymns that God has already given. And then finally, as we think about how we sing together, we want to be considerate of the sensibilities of the whole body at any season in the life of the church. And that decision, that will rest again with the elders that you have recognized and that God has raised up here to lead this congregation. So as we sing together, I want to end with this. I want to ask you to do something. I want you to go home this week, and I want, to, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I sing biblically? Do I sing biblically when I come to Palmetto? Do I come and do I engage intentionally in the singing? Do I come and when I sing, do I think about what I'm singing? Do I reflect on the words that, that I am singing to the Lord? When those words are prayers, do I enter into that prayer personally with the rest of the body? Do I celebrate who God is and what He is like in my singing? And here's my belief. If you will do that, if you will think intentionally and come and engage personally and celebrate what God is doing, who God is and what God is like, our singing will go to a new level. You know, people like me can get up here and say, folks, you guys are singing great. And I'm so thankful for our singing. You sing well. But people like me, you can't ever say, you know what? You need to sing louder. You need to sing. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you need to sing with joy. And you need to sing with gratitude. And you need to sing with thanksgiving. And I'm convinced that when we do that, it will transform our singing. And so let's ask the Lord to help us to do that. If you want the fuller notes for this, because this is such an important sermon. They're available to you on our app, and I hope you'll take advantage of that. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you that you have given to us the gift of singing. Thank you that as we come together and gathered worship, we don't just sit and listen. We stand and participate. Our hearts are elevated to you because of who you are, even as we stand in Asaph sandals and we Think about the world around us that is so contradictory to what we experience and to what we see in your word. And Lord, sometimes our own feet are like Asaph's about to slip away from our faith. And Lord, we pray that you would use the, the truth we sing in our services and the truth we pray together to be the truth of your word that elevates your son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.